you can understand all the facts and data points related to Jesus and not be saved. And I was at that point at one point, you know, where I was like, wow, you know, I don't, I still didn't recognize my own need for a savior. And that was something because I wasn't really examining the gospels to see what they said about me. I was examining the gospels to see what they said about Jesus. And now once you flip that switch, now you're suddenly going, wow, this is absolutely true in terms of my own condition Mm -hmm. and my own need. And that, that does change. That's a game changer. You are in the trenches of life. You are faced with pressure every day. Family, work, community, all demanding a piece of life. Fatherhood is war, but you continually battle for your soul and the souls in your family. It can feel isolating and exhausting, but there is good news. You have a heavenly father. Because of Jesus, you can be strong, courageous. You can be an intentional father, living with purpose. This is what you are meant for. You will make an impact. You are not alone. Welcome to Dad in the Trenches, a resource for biblical truth, challenge, and encouragement for Christian dads in the trenches of life. Well, guys, thank you for joining us today here on Dad in the Trenches. Um, My guest today is Jim Wallace. He goes by the author name J. Warner Wallace. Um, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Dad in the Trenches. Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, for, for those of our listeners that may not know you, um, you know, take just a minute. Tell us about what you're doing presently, your season of life, family dynamics, um, all that fun stuff. Well, uh, I am a cold case detective in Los Angeles County. I've been have done that for about twenty five years. I uh, uh, no longer doing that full time. I have one case I still want to solve. Uh, there's were two until about a month ago, and now we've got that one out of the way. So there's about one more left. These are just unsolved homicides that have occurred in Los Angeles County. Uh, did that for a number of years. Um, had a great time doing it. A lot of our cases ended up on Dateline. So if you like Dateline, you've probably seen our cases. Um, the, so I think I've been on Dateline more than anybody else in the country, um, but these just all unsolved homicides. And then I, I became a Christian later in life. I was about 35 when I became a Christian, and I did so by using the skill set that I had as a detective to examine the Gospels uh, to see if they were in any way could be considered historical, could be considered uh, written from uh, original eyewitnesses who would have seen this stuff. And a lot of that is similar to the kinds of things I did in in our cold cases, because those are all events that occur in history. Sometimes, I mean, the case we just did about a month ago, solved about a month ago, was my dad's case before it was mine. It uh, It occurred in 1972. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, we go back and we're, you're 47 years after the fact and you just do the best you can to to put together <laughs> what you think occurred in the past, even though you, your eyewitnesses are often dead. And the people who wrote the reports when they first interviewed the eyewitnesses, those folks are dead, too. Wow. And if you think about that, that's very similar to, you know, the, the Gospels. We don't have any access to the eyewitnesses or to the people who chronicle their stories, but we can still figure out if it's true or not. And that's mm-hmm. what I try to do. Um, and I've written about that in a couple books. So yeah. look at so that's that's my my story in a thumbnail. I know for for my own self, as I've been reading through, uh, in particular, cold case Christianity, I had no idea uh, just to get where you are working. You know, cold case um, homicide detective. You know, there's there's quite a track that you go through. It's not like someone can just suddenly magically jump into that. I mean, you were 
but a patrol officer, you're on like gang detail, um, SWAT team, you know, those dealing with career criminals before you even were able to get into that. Is that correct? Yeah, most of us who end up on a on a homicide team, um, we, we get there because we get promoted, not promoted so much as reassigned. <laughs> and in a sense, it is a promotion because, you know, you, you have to do a, a number of things that are investigated. I was in two investigative positions before I even started working robbery homicide. Uh, and then you're going to be working some robberies and some homicides, fresh homicides. And then... Mm-hmm. I, uh, we, we decided pretty early on that we would take on as a collateral duty some of the unsolved cases. And, and so in the end, those unsolved cases uh, were, were so time-consuming that my, my sergeant uh, eventually said, hey, we, we should probably start a team. Oh, wow. And so I, we, we started a team, and that, that's when we really started to take off and, um, and get a bunch of stuff done. Because yeah. when you have it as a collateral duty, you know, you've got other things you got to do, sure. uh, it's really hard to be focused. Um, once it's something that you can dedicate time to well then you're able to do it so yeah. so yeah so for me it starts off no one people will say well how can I, I want to be a detective too well really what that means is do you want to be a patrol uh, you know a patrol officer that's what's going to take you know you're handling a lot of calls calls for service domestic violence calls all kinds of calls you're not necessarily going to feel like are the reason why you wanted to do this before you may or may not get assigned to homicide i mean a lot of us don't don't we get assigned to investigations but they'll stick you in you know crimes property where you're working um, auto burgs or residential burglaries or commercial burglaries you, you know you have to kind of work your way toward those because a lot of these cases we're talking about are cases that get high publicity so dateline sometimes is there before we even take the guy to jail oh my goodness and so they're just because they're in your pocket you know yeah. they, they they you do a couple of cases with them then they realize that you're the source of cases then they want to get involved earlier and earlier in your case so they can uh, chronicle it so that's why you want to be in a position where you're not going to maybe stumble as much publicly you know uh, i got you and uh, you, you just your family, um, you're married and have kids. Tell us about uh, that aspect. I met my wife when we were in high school. I was 17 and she was 15. <laughs> um, we were not Christian. We didn't become Christians for another 18 years. Okay. So the first 18 years, we were not uh, believers. Um, uh, we dated for about nine and got married. Been married 31. So we've been together for 40 years and I've got a, I got a 31 year old. Um, I've got a I've got a 28-year-old, uh, 23 and 22. So my son, my oldest son, is a, is married uh, as a police officer. I've got a son who's in a residency as an anesthesiologist, and I've got two daughters. One's in the Marine Corps, and uh, one is in school as a vet tech. Um, interested in doing something with animals not quite sure what she wants to do yet yeah uh, so that's that's basic but they're all out of the house so they're all <laughs> we were empty nested and they are on their own and doing great wow that is cool um and and also just you know talk about um you know your background growing up with your father and also you know why what got you into police work really well my you know my dad and my mom divorced very early on uh that was about i was about three uh, mm-hmm. when they separated and so my mom never remarried my dad did remarry had uh, more kids with the second wife so i have half brothers and sisters okay. um but but i stayed you know i wasn't really uh in a strong close relationship with my dad until i was about 17 mm-hmm. uh but that doesn't mean you aren't drawn to do the things your dad uh you know you, you kind of always seeking the um approval of your father and mm-hmm. oftentimes even when 
maybe you don't have a great relationship or maybe you're not even in the same house with them, you know? So, and I wasn't raised with my dad. Uh, he was in the next city over. Uh, and, uh, but we saw, I was, you know, we saw each other a lot, um, you know, a couple times a month, uh, I say a lot, but not a lot for a dad, but more like an uncle, you know, but right. we were not close until I was in high school. And as I graduated high school, we became very close and, uh, have been, uh, you know, uh, best friends, mm-hmm. but it's really not a father son relationship. If I had to, it's, it's kind of like an older mentor, um, like a, like if you had, if you had a really good friend, maybe somebody who was like an uncle to you. Um, that's pretty much how, uh, that relationship has evolved over the years. Uh, my dad is, uh, somebody who was not raised as a believer, uh, not raised in the church. That's why for me, I was not raised either. No one in my family was Christians, uh, growing up. And it was pretty easy here in Southern California to not, um, this is a very dense population here. It's a huge area, and the city is, is you know is so large. The county is even you know, of course is huge, mm-hmm. and there are pockets in little communities, um, just you know hundreds of them. And if you you could, it's very easy to, to to either grow up in the church here if you're part of a church family, uh, and maybe maybe not even be as exposed. You know you can kind of you know hang out with people who are like minded. Uh, but it's really easy to to be out of the church here and mm. and never never really bump into anybody who would talk about the I didn't I, I didn't know anybody growing up. Mm. I had a few friends that I was closest to growing up, and I didn't know any families that were Christians. Um, so it was never something that I thought. Well, I wonder I should look into it. You know, I, I'm interested. I got friends who are. I'm surrounded by this. No, it was none of that. I mean, yeah. Um, it's just easy to stay outside and kind of look in through the window, you know, but, uh, um, but my, my wife was kind of raised as a cultural Catholic growing up, although we never really talked about it much. And so for, for us in those first 18 years, I never felt like, um, you know, she didn't, I think she would have said I was a, she was a believer in something, but what was it? You know, she was kind of unable to put her finger on it. Uh, so we both got saved, uh, really together, but she was probably, she, she kind of saw it like, well, Hey, this is, this is my mom at least took me to church on holidays and stuff. I mean, right. shouldn't we be taking our kids to church too? Yeah. And that's really, I think that the, the manner in which she saw it, it had some value in, um, tradition and, um, upbringing. And, and we had kids by that time, my kids, my boys were already born. They were like six and eight or, or five and seven. Mm, okay. So it was, she was thinking, Hey, should we, should we do this? And so I was more than willing to go as an atheist, uh, because my dad would be happy to do that. Even now he, he loves the country or the, the culture that emerges when the majority of people have hold a Christian worldview of some kind, mm. you know, even if it's just, if it, even if it's just the most, um, lukewarm, I mean, he knows that he would rather be in a room full of Christians than not, right. but he doesn't think it's true. <laughs> So, so that's kind of that's kind of where he stands. But that's where I was. So I was more than willing to go to church as long as that's all you required of me. Gotcha, gotcha. And so that talk about just how that led into you going to church. You know, the next steps of really uh, coming to believe, uh, coming to believe in Jesus. Well, the, the the pastor, you know, my, my wife was looking for a church in this neighborhood. We've been here about three years, and uh, I had successfully avoided going to church. And, she, and I think she did ask me a couple times prior. It just it was never a priority. It was not something that was like you know something divisive between us. We had a great marriage. We've mm-hmm. known each other since we were kids, so we were very very happy. Uh, no no problems, nothing like that. It was not like I was trying to fix something or solve something. But right. but she did have a sense that hey, should we at least try this out and. 
So I thought she would probably pick a Catholic parish nearby, but she ended up picking a church that's very large here that uh, a friend of ours at, at work had had told us that he was had actually invited us, but I just didn't think anything of it. But she had remembered that invitation. Mm. And uh, so we ended up going there. And that that pastor described Jesus a number of ways in that first sermon. I'd never heard anything like that. Um, he, he described Jesus as being kind of the center of Western civilization and the smartest man who ever lived. Mm. And that was enough for me to be interested enough to get a Bible. Mm. And that's that's what I did. I got the Bible and I started ripping through it and um, looking at what it said about Jesus, the red letter kind of stuff. Yeah. And eventually I was intrigued by the narratives enough to want to test them to see if they were true. Yeah. Just given the same skill set you would test at an old case, you know, where you say, hey, I got these four witnesses that are saying this. None of it may be true. All of it may be true. Some of it may be true. Um, how would we test that? How would we know? Uh, and that's basically what I, I uh, tried to do. Very interesting. I, was, I, wasn't trying, I wasn't trying to prove it wrong, by the way. Like, I got a friend, Lee <laughs> Strobel who's written the case for Christ. And, and Leslie, when she first became interested in Jesus, you know, I think he was, he was upset by it. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, didn't want to, to kind of change his life. And, and I think he has, his first desire would have been to, um, to, to prove it wrong. And that really was his effort. Uh, that was not mine. I, I was not, uh, I didn't think it was even worth the time to prove wrong. Yeah. I th- that was it was nonsense to believe that Jesus was what well, you know was God or or that these miraculous things happen. I thought in my mind, but you can still learn something profound from ancient writers, even if they're writing it and speaking it through a fictional character. Huh. I was simply interested in the uh, wisdom statements. You know, like you might be interested in any ancient sage. Let's say you had the a collection of data or wisdom statements from uh, Confucius or from Buddha or from Aristotle or Plato or from uh, Baha'u'llah, which is a, I had a sociology teacher in high school who who was interested in uh, the Baha'i faith. And so, you know, you, you could still, I don't have to believe any of that stuff is true in order to, 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 to know that there's something ancient and profound about, you know, an author can provide you with something profound when writing fiction. So, so I just, that's how I approached it. That's really interesting. You know, most, uh, maybe you can kind of reconcile this for us because it seems like a, a lot of people, especially when we talk about quote unquote faith, that there's this aspect of belief in something you can't necessarily put your finger on or touch or even prove. Um, but the things you're talking about, the approach that you took and ultimately what led you to, to, to quote unquote faith was much more, um, we could say forensic based, uh, evidential based, you know, talk, talk us through kind of reconciling those, the concept of faith and, and also, you know, how you, you approach this. Well, one of the things that gave me great confidence, or at least encouragement, when I was reading through the scripture, is that Jesus doesn't take the view that you just described. Mm. In other words, I, I didn't, and I wasn't raised in a church culture where you have all the baggage of what church culture might teach you, right? right? I mean, that was not. I have no idea. I had no idea what people meant when they said they had faith or they wanted to share their testimony with me. That what does that even mean? <laughs> the only testimony I'm familiar with is when people will testify to the objective facts that occur on something. That they happen to witness, right? And if they told me, here's what I experienced, here's my feelings, I'm not even interested in your feelings. I need to know what did you see, okay? Not how did you feel about what you saw. Right. And so, and so, and I'll be honest with you, that is the way the word testimony is used in scripture. Mm. 
We think of it as, oh, let me tell you my experience. The testimony that was offered in the first century in the book of Acts was the testimony about people who had seen the risen Christ, and they would testify about their experience with the risen Christ. Mm. Not about what Jesus did for them, any emotional response they had, any sensation they had. It was about they were testifying, which is what Jesus told them to do, and selected them out. So Jesus, it turns out, is by far one of the most profound evidentialists I'd ever seen in paper. And I thought this was exactly the kind of guy I'm looking for, because think about what he did. He never said, just blindly trust what I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. He can repeatedly said, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least trust in the miracles I've worked in front of you. Mm. Those are the evidence I've given you that I, the miracles always authenticated his message. He doesn't come into a city and begin to proclaim something until first he heals someone. You heal, then you herald. Why? Because when you heal first, you have now established your authority by way of the evidence, the miracles. As a matter of fact, when John starts having doubts about his faith, John the Baptist, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, John sent us. He wants to know, are you the one? Now, think about the ways that Jesus could have responded. (laughs) Really? So so John, who's my cousin, who leapt in the womb, who baptized me and saw the Holy Spirit descend on me, that guy now wants to know if I'm the one? (laughs) Now, he is going to respond to the disciples with the truest description of what it is to have faith and to increase your faith or to return to your faith. And what does he say to them? He doesn't say anything to them. He works miracles in front of them. And he says, go back and tell John what you just saw. (laughs) That is an evidentialist. That's somebody who knows that is now, you might say then, well, then what is the role of faith? Well, look, we, uh, every time I do a case in front of a jury, I cannot answer every significant question the juror has. And I've had some cases where I couldn't even ask, answer the simplest questions. Mm. So you have to be able to render a verdict even though you can't have every question answered. The question is how far does your evidence trail take you and how big is that step of trust that gets you from, I'm not sure, to rendering a verdict? Mm. Well, the Christian worldview lays out a long, strong evidence case, and Jesus is a committed evidentialist. He even picks those who are going to represent him on the basis of their eyewitness authority. Nobody acts as an apostle who isn't at the upper room, right? There were 120 people. To replace Judas, who do they pick? Somebody who had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. Why? Because he's looking for eyewitnesses. That's called direct evidence. It's the, mm-hmm. it's one of the everyone thinks direct evidence is the best form of evidence. Well, okay, that's what Jesus is doing. He is selecting those people, and they are selecting to replace Judas with another eyewitness. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were doing when they were testifying. That's called direct evidence. There's no more evidential uh, theistic worldview than in Christianity because it's rooted in an event that occurred in history around which there are witnesses who testified. Mm-hmm. I think what we've kind of done, at least what I'm seeing, is that we've kind of taken that word testimony and we, what does it really mean? Mm-hmm. By the way, the, the, the two most popular reasons why anyone is a Christian are simply, number one, they were raised in the church. That's the most popular answer you're going to get if you start asking. Number two is, I've had an experience that confirmed for me that Christianity is true. They will give you their testimony. They, 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 God did something amazing in their life. They saw a miracle. That prayer was answered. Whatever it may be, 
they experienced something that confirmed for them that Christianity was true. Well, just so you know, my dad's second wife is Mormon. Now, he doesn't believe Mormonism is true either, but it sure raised up some nice kids, so he's very happy with it. <laughs> and I have six brothers and sisters who were raised LDS. Okay. Now, if you were to ask them, why are you a Mormon? Guess what their two answers are? The exact same two answers. They were raised in the church, and they had an experience of the Holy Spirit, which demonstrated for them that Joseph Smith's a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true. It turns out those are the two most popular answers for Buddhists, Mormons, Muslims, whatever religious view you have, uh-huh. you are far more likely to say it's true because you were raised that way. So it seems to me if we're going to answer the question, why is Christian, why are you a Christian, shouldn't we have a uniquely Christian response? Hmm. Instead, we have the same response that everybody offers regardless of what they are, and we don't think that their system is true. So why would we think that our response would make our system true? It turns out we're the one group that could say, well, this thing called the resurrection occurs, and I've got a good reason to believe that that's true on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Let me share that with you. That is, by the way, the way every single convert came to Christianity in the book of Acts. Think about it. Peter's first sermon is what? Hey, Jesus was attested to you, a man attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders, and we saw him rise from the grave with our own eyes. That is his message, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm a good friend of Ray Comfort. I, think I, can, I call Ray Comfort a friend, and Ray's one of those guys who will go out and he'll say, hey, have you ever, ever, ever cheated? Well, then you're a cheater. Have you ever lied? You're a liar. Ever stolen anything? You're a thief. Ever left ever someone in your in your in your head? Well, you're you're you know you're you're an adulterer. And he'll show you your need first, and then he will offer the gospel. That's brilliant, I think, and I, I'm I'm behind that approach. But that is not the approach that the apostles took in the first century. Huh. They took an evidential approach, where they simply said, "We saw the risen Christ." Hmm. Even even Paul's story, it's all about getting you to the road to Damascus so he can tell you where he saw the risen Christ. Hmm. Now, certainly, you, it, it's, it's important to say, yes, you know, uh, my life was changed afterwards. But I don't think that we can necessarily say that the same way because we're not seeing the risen Christ. So, so our saying that our lives were changed by Jesus— it's kind of the same way that a Jehovah's Witness or, or a Christian scientist or a Mormon or anybody would say, my life was changed by the God I worship. Mm. Uh, so I think we have to do—I I think that that's a, that's a good start, but I also want to be able to say, and, and here's why I think that my experience is true, because it's grounded in something that's evidentially true, mm-hmm. and then be able to share that next step. Yeah. How do you answer the question, why are you a Christian? I mean, you've hit on some of those things, but what do you what do you tell people? How do you? I always say, well, do you have time for this? Because it's going to take me about two hours to tell you why. Because it's not going to be an experience I'm going to share with you. Right. Because I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I'm not a Christian because it changed my life. I'm a Christian because I I dug through the case and it man, it's true. And on days that I don't even like it, it's still true. And by the way, if you really want young people to stop this hemorrhaging that we're seeing in the church. We're going to have to, at some point, help them to see that even on those days when you're under attack or your Christian worldview is the least popular worldview on your university campus, mm-hmm. it is true. And you know what? True things are hard, often very hard. And so the fact that it's hard uh, is, is, I think, in some ways um, made more palatable by the fact that it's true. Mm. And I would rather be in a hard truth than in an easy lie. 
So, so I think that once my, my, my sons will tell you that we just did a class of Biola together and they were talking about this process we took through their high school years to help them know this was true. And, you know, Talk some more I, I had one I'm son really, really interested to well, hear how you, I had, you did that with your kids. And yeah, well, I had one son who was in the hard sciences and one son who was more in the softer sciences. One was a psychology major and one was a biology and, a, a, you know, kind of molecular biology, okay. biochemistry stuff. And then he became an anesthesiologist. So. So they were in very secular school settings, public schools, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, um, and schools uh, for the most part did not embrace their Christian worldview. And there were times too when they you know you just you 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 can get sideways because you're tempted by something that your base desire makes you makes you chase for a season. Mm-hmm. But if you know it's true, you eventually come back to it. Um, and so knowing it was true was helpful for both of them. And I think what I did, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be uh, their youth pastor when they were growing up. So a lot of what I saw in youth ministry, I just knew that I wanted to be able to address. You know, I was I was I became a Christian at 35, and then a couple of years later, I enrolled in seminary. Seven years later, I had a degree. I was pastoring a youth group at a church here locally. And and my kids were growing up in that that ministry, so I, I kind of had them from the time they were like in the fifth grade until they were you know graduated high school. And one of the things I saw was that young people, even back then, because my kids are older now, even back then they were leaving the church in, in their college years. And a lot of them, you know, to be honest, they were leaving the church earlier. They just weren't telling their parents. Yeah. And so they would be gone by the time they were in university. Now, this is, may not be true everywhere in the country, and I suspect there are probably some places in the country where this is less of a problem than it may be here in Southern California. Remember that cities become more secular the, the closer they are to the water, the closer right. they are to large urban areas, and the closer they are to university towns. So if you happen to be in a large urban area that's got you know tons of universities and it's on the water's edge like Los Angeles, you're probably in a pretty <laughs> secular environment. And that was where these kids were raised. So we took a, an approach that was entirely evidential, but I built it on three legs. I talk about this in a book called So the Next Generation Will Know. Yeah. And what we basically did was we said, hey, parents really want behavior. You know, make sure my kid doesn't do stupid stuff. <laughs> so if you could just make sure my kid doesn't do stupid stuff, we'll be happy with you. Uh, but but I, would, I knew you couldn't start with behavior. Behaviors are, are grounded in theology and in yeah. philosophy, right? You know, is this true? Can it be defended? And then if it is true and it can be defended, well, then the question is, are there certain outcomes we should expect in terms of behavior mm-hmm. if this is a true, this is a true belief? And, and I think there are. But we had to start with. So we, we would we would do those three things, you know, apologetics, uh, theology, apologetics, and behavior. I call it tab, tra- tab, train. And we, we moved away from teaching. I stopped teaching very early. I'm a first responder, so I know that teaching is about useless in almost every <laughs> setting. You have to move from teaching to training. Okay. And training is very different than teaching. Teaching is blah, 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 blah. I'm imparting information. Right. You could have a math class and they could, you could go in and teach every day. But what makes the math class different is there's a test coming. And you have to pass the test. If you told everyone before you started, I'm going to teach you a bunch of stuff about math, but you'll never have to take a test. Everyone's guaranteed an A. <laughs> Do you think anyone would study math? Oh, no. <laughs> we would study for the class where we have a test. So here we are as pastors. We're saying, hey, we've got this thing we're going to teach you about, but there'll never be a test. Well, it turns out that fighters train, and they train because they have a calendared fight. It's on the calendar already. Mm-hmm. Now, I might get fat between fights, but once the fight's coming up, I'm going to spend six weeks training. I'm going to be in great shape before that fight starts because i got to fight. Right. 
So what I started to do was to simply calendar on my my uh, calendar for our ministry uh, the challenges that we would train toward. Okay. And then we would train toward three different kinds of challenges, you know, a, a theology challenge, an apologetics challenge, and the behavioral challenges are much easier, so you can you can do more of those. Yeah. Um, but we do one trip for six days to teach theology, and to give us something to train for. Mm. And then one trip that would give us something to train for in apologetics. Okay. And then several trips that would give us something to train for in terms of behavior. So I can spend six weeks on a theology series, and people are paying attention now. Why? Because we're about ready to go on this trip. And trust me, there will be roadkill if you don't study this stuff. If you don't know this stuff, <laughs> then we're going to have a great time. And it's gonna you're going to feel like the most amazing experience you've ever had in your spiritual walk you're going to have on this trip. And the students would tell us that. They would say, oh, my gosh. I mean, if you've ever done a trip like this, trust me, there's nothing like it. There's nothing you can even approximate it. So to teach theology, for example, we would take our kids for seven days to Salt Lake City. That's not far from us, about 12 hours in a drive. Uh-huh. So you can spend one dry day getting there, one day getting back, and you can do it in eight days and pretty much have seven days on the ground where you can actually be evangelizing Mormons who have accepted every single word and theological term that is in the Christian you know, lexicon, but they have redefined every one of those. Hmm. And they see you as the lost people group. They are very energetic. They want to have conversations with you. They're like, what? You want to talk about God and you came to us this time? This is awesome. <laughs> They're used to having to go to you. So they will have conversations with you. And we start off on the Temple Square in Salt Lake City. We do uh, street evangelism at the temple on the street in front of the temple. We do street evangelism in the city of Provo, which is where BYU is located. Mm-hmm. We do on the campus in the, in the food courts. Wow. These challenges are like the like the you like kind of like the the all star uh, parade of of horrifying evangelism uh, scenarios, right? <laughs> and kids are like, "You're going to do what? Yeah, I'm going to drop you off." Right here on the streets of Provo, you're going to go door to door like a Mormon missionary. Only you're going to be a Christian missionary. <laughs> and trust me, someone's going to ask you to come in with about probably two door knocks because this is the largest population of returned Mormon missionaries anywhere on the world. So when you go door to door there, someone's going to answer the door, and they're they're a returned Mormon missionary now going to BYU. They're like, yeah, come on in. Mm-hmm. And our kids would be involved in conversations for hours. They'd be having meals with people in their homes mm. talking about the Christian worldview. And then they would come back and they would go, wow, that was brutally difficult and I did a terrible job. <laughs> but <laughs> I tried. And then they would study all night long getting ready for tomorrow. And then the next year when you plan this trip, you've doubled your group because the, the first group who first went, they are definitely going back. And the group, they've now convinced everybody else to go too. So then you have a size issue, right? Because you're trying to get more kids to be able to go. But that trip was so transformational in the lives of my own kids yeah. um, and in the lives of the kids that we brought yeah. that we just learned a lot from that. We learned that, man, if we can do that. That is a, an unbelievable opportunity, and it gives us something on the calendar that we can now teach toward. When you start a series in theology, and you're six weeks before that trip, and you're going to require everyone to do the Sunday teaching, the Wednesday night teaching, you got to be there. You can only miss one session, or you can't go on the trip. you got to mm-hmm. pay in advance. you got to read this book. We're going to have a test before we leave, and then we're going to go. And then something amazing is going to happen. And, and and once they experience it once, they 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 always want to come back. Yeah. And we did the same thing with atheist with uh, apologetics. We would take the kids to UC Berkeley because that's one of the more hostile college yeah. campuses. Same kind of trip, 
same approach, same process, engage tons of folks who are atheist or agnostic, uh, much more encountering a secular worldview and uh, training for that before we get there. Uh, now you bring that to life. So those are the kinds of trips we would take. That that process of of shifting from a teaching model to a training model mm-hmm. um, is probably the biggest piece of advice I can give people is is that if you if if your kids know that in the end they are never really going to have to use this, right? They're probably not going to pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. You're blowing my mind. I think about my own youth group experience uh, in high school and um, the things we did or didn't do that would, you know, uh, you talk about roadkill. That that would have been my experience for sure if I was in that scenario with what I knew then. Well, yeah, you know, and a lot of this, too, is just about us wanting. We love our kids, and we have to make our kids a priority. And the mm-hmm. church has to make kids a priority, right? Mm-hmm. That's something I, I guess sort of part of it for me is that, you know, I didn't have any idea. At some point, I, I, I told Susie, I was pretty convinced that the Gospels were telling us something reliable about Jesus, but I still didn't under, understand the Gospel. Like, what is, you can understand all the facts and data points related to Jesus and not be saved. And I was at that point at one point, you know, where I was like, wow, you know, I don't, I still didn't recognize my own need for a Savior. And that was something because I wasn't really examining the Gospels to see what they said about me. I was examining the Gospels to see what they said about Jesus. Yeah. And now once you flip that switch, now you're suddenly going, wow, this is absolutely true in terms of my own condition mm. and my own need. And that, that does change. That's a game changer, mm. right? But, but I didn't have any sense of what the church was about. Like, why do we do church the way we do church Especially, so let's put it this way. Imagine you're an alien and you're flying in from across the, the, the universe and you're coming up on Earth and your 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 assistant says, hey, uh, we're going to be getting ready to land here in a minute. And there's a lot of Christians on the planet. So, so I'm going to give you this book, this thing called a Bible. Read the New Testament because it will give you some sense of what to expect. You'll get some sense because these guys are meeting in the church setting. They, they meet in groups. And and they they believe this a number of things that you'll find out about when you read the gospels. So if you read the gospels, you'll figure out what they believe, and you'll get a sense for how they meet. All you have as your text is the Bible. So you read that thing, getting ready to land, and when you step out on planet Earth, do you think you might be surprised by what you actually discover, given the text you are given in terms of how we meet, how we live? <laughs> you know, mm. I mean, any of this. Yeah. So for me, I was like, wow, I, did, I was that alien. I had never been around Christians or around the church. I was stepping into this for the first time. I was 35, and I, I, before I got really connected in the church setting, I was connected to this text all the way through the book of Acts. And then I thought, wow, it's interesting how, given what we have here, we now do this. And we interpret the words to mean this, but I'm wondering if that was really the intention of the authors in these areas. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it seemed to me it was. I was. I was coming in without any tradition or history guiding my interpretation. Mm-hmm. So when I saw what was happening in the Book of Acts, I longed for that sense 
of transformational community. And I wanted my kids to experience something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what started to guide my approach to youth group. Oh, that's good. And you also talk about, um, you know, when you talk about legacy and your kids and, um, there's this, you talk about trajectory decisions and the importance really that the apologetics plays into that. Talk just a little bit more about that too. Well, uh, you know, I teach it, uh, most of my audiences are high schoolers. I mean, they're probably about half my audiences right now this That's year will be high schoolers. So, so you know, we do a lot of, well, we do a lot of conferences that are, and so to teach at, at the level, I'm teaching the exact same topics with the exact same words I would use to teach an adult group. Yeah. So I don't change anything about the way I teach or what I teach. I just focus on young people. And I, you have to make that very visual. There's a couple of things you have to do to work with young people, I think, and to communicate. We talk about this, some of this stuff, and, and, and so the next generation will know. But uh-huh. but one of the things I ask, we, we teach both Sean and I, Sean McDowell, who wrote the book with me, we teach at a um, an organization called Summit Ministries. Mm-hmm. They have a two-week immersive conference every year. And I suggest anyone who's got teenagers, you need to send your kids to Summit. I'm just a, I'm on faculty there, but I mean, I've got no horse in this race in terms of getting you guys to go. But I will tell you that what we see in the lives of high school teenagers is pretty remarkable in terms of teaching them Christian worldview at Summit Ministries. And so it starts in May and it ends in August, and we've got you know 180 kids six to, uh, seven times. So we get to talk to them on the porch at the end of the night, and they'll ask questions. And I will often ask these students, you know, what do you think? You know, there are some important, some questions are, and, and decisions you make are critically important. And I do call these trajectory decisions because these are the ones like, you know, if you're taken off from the, from the earth and you make a, a you know, a, a two degree uh, error as you're on the way to the moon, but you only make that two degree error about a mile from the moon, well, you're still going to land on the moon. But if you make the same two degree error as you're taking off and just leaving the atmosphere at earth, you're going to miss the moon by thousands of miles. So it turns out that same two-degree error is more critical earlier than it is later. These are what I call trajectory decisions. There are some decisions you're going to make early in life that will change your life forever. I don't know if you've um, are familiar with Ken Burns, but Ken Burns is a videographer. He's yeah. done a bunch of. He just finished a, a, a series on country music, which I thought was, you know, I've watched all of them, so I'm watching this one on country <laughs> music. And it's it's sad to see how many train wrecks are out there in any music industry, you know, any creative endeavor, right? But you see that these folks who are starting their careers are making all kinds of bad choices early, and then they, their whole lives are wrecked by the bad choices they made early. So I ask students all the time, well, what, what do you think the most important trajectory decisions? These students are like uh, 14 to 22. They're all together on the porch. It's it's nighttime. It's, it's it's starting to get you know starting to get late in the day, and and they'll say uh, usually their most repeated answers are, well, I mean it's important to make the good early decisions about your uh, education and career preparation, ministry and career. They will always say that. It's going to be about like, you know, I'm getting ready to figure out what job God has got me called, called me to, or or I'm going to be in ministry or what job plus ministry. I mean, and how do I prepare for that? And I'm like, okay, those are good, but those aren't the most important trajectory decision. The most important trajectory decision you're ever going to make is spouse. Sorry. (laughs) It just is. Because I have, we've all seen this. People can make great decisions about their career and make a really bad decision about spouse. And trust me, they're going to end up giving a half away, you know, whatever they've earned, they're going to give half of it away and have a train wreck and kids are going to be in a divorce situation. It's going to be a mess. 
Or you can make a really bad decision about your career, but make a really good spouse decision. And guess what? You're going to have a good, happy life because mm. it turns out the most important things you're going to do are not about making money and that kind of stuff anyway. Yeah. So, so I always tell young people, look, you've got, a, you've got a system in place. You've been thinking hard. People have helped you to kind of plan out your future in terms of career and college and all these things. You've actually got, like, I need to take these classes so I can apply to these schools. You have a plan in place. Yeah. And you just think that God's going to drop some spouse into your lap along the way. You're <laughs> far more intentional about those other decisions than you are about this one. And it turns out this is a far more important decision. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, before I was ever a Christian, the God that I worshipped was marriage. Mm-hmm. That was by far the most important thing in my life. Because I, my parents were not, you know, good at marriage. Right. But I knew I wasn't going to do that again. Right. So I, I, this was a big, important decision to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I see in the gospel something that is really interesting. I see that I'm an apologist, right? I make a case for Christianity. And you learn a lot about how to make that case. And I, I understand, I think, enough to make the case today. But... It turns out that Jesus, when it comes to apologetics, has something very specific to say. It's in the Gospel of John. It's one of the last sermon he ever, last conversation he ever has at length with his disciples, and he tells them, "If you want the world around you to to know that I am who I said I was, you have to be unified." Mm. He tells them that he's going to give them a new command to love one another, which is not a new command. It's an old command. But mm-hmm. he says, as I have loved you. That's the new part. Mm. A level of commitment to each other. Now, you don't even hear that expression or that kind of level of commitment again until Paul is writing in Ephesians about marriage. Mm. And Paul tells uh, his readers that men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. There it is again. So interestingly, it turns out you can make a case for Christianity. You could preach the gospel by simply having the kind of marriage that God has called us to. Mm. Because marriage is a snapshot of the church and of Christ loving the church. You could preach the gospel and make the case by simply having the kind of marriage that God has called us to. Mm. Now, the question is, do we have that kind of marriage? Right. And, and look, all of us have got things that will tempt you away from that or distract you from that. I certainly was not a Christian, and there's nothing more distracting than law enforcement. You put a guy in a uniform, you will have a lot of girls who will be interested. That's just the way it is. <laughs> and so we have to figure out, well, what do we do with that? And that's why I think it's sometimes hard for people in uniform to not be distracted. Hmm. Well, it's something we have to make a decision about because it turns out, if and now as a Christian, I will tell you that I— I'm more proud of my marriage than I am of any stupid book I've written. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I want my marriage to preach the gospel louder than anything else. That's so good. I'm curious too, just as you, you know, you're on faculty with Summit and you help teach at Biola, and you're around a lot of young people. You know, I think there's there's a lot of us that are concerned for the quote unquote next generation and for their faith and. Um, mm-hmm. You know what excites you with just what you see with them, and you know thoughts on how you engage them and strengthen their faith, and um, what's ahead? Do you see? Well, I'm excited just because young people are exciting to be around. I mean, uh, young people have the opportunity to influence culture far more than their parents. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about who's going to write a song 
that is going to capture the imagination? Who's going to sing a song, perform a song, record a song? It's going to be somebody young, younger than me, probably somebody in that Gen Z or early uh, late millennials or early you know Gen Z, who's going to come up and have that kind of cultural influence. As we get older, we have less cultural influence, in my opinion. If we can, are concerned about our future and we've got an eye on the polling, an eye on the trajectory of the n- number of people who claim a Christian identity, mm-hmm. then I think we should be concerned about the next generation. And it should be our first and primary concern. You know, when you were uh, parenting young kids, you have younger kids than mine, so you have 11, 11 down. So yeah. right now in that season of parenting, I suspect that what you're doing— is you're making decisions that aren't all about you and your wife. So when I was in that season of parenting, I didn't get to choose what, uh, you know, there's a restaurant I want to go to. That's not where we're going. We're going to go to the restaurant that's good for the kids. And there is a a movie that I want to see. We're not going to see that movie. We're going to watch a movie that's good for the kids. And there's a vacation that I want to take. We're not going to take. In other words, every decision we made, we made with our kids in mind because we knew that we had a responsibility first to our kids. And I think that's absolutely appropriate. Uh, But we have kids we're raising as a church. And that means that we have to make decisions that aren't about us. Oh, I don't like that style of worship. Or that topic doesn't really suit me. I don't really, really? You've got kids. And what we typically do is drop them off in some other part of the church before we even sit down and listen to a message. You know, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I think sometimes our our kids are not with us when they're older is because they're not with us when they're younger. Mm. So I don't know why we are separating kids out into different ministries. I get that we want—here's why we do it. Because we're thinking to ourselves, man, I don't want a kid-appropriate—a kid, uh, you know, a, a way you're going to throw this message. I, if you're going to throw it for high schoolers, I'm probably not interested. Well, you know, I throw these messages at adult conferences. They're the same messages that I throw for high schoolers. Right. So I get it. You have to take some. You have to take a different approach. I understand that. But it, it turns out if you're if you're visual in how you do this, you're, it's going to appeal to everybody. So so you can still do the same thing, and you can bring kids. And by the way, I treat kids when they're in my high school ministry like they're college age. Yeah. Which is actually a higher level than we're supposed to be writing to as authors, right? You're supposed to write it at about an eighth grade level to get the most people to read your books, really. So, so if all your if if you're teaching at a college level and you can get high schoolers to grab on because they're interested in the topic the way you're teaching it, well, then you can probably take care of your adults too. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is is that we have to be able to say, hey. I want, I want, I don't want to be, my kids did not want to be in their age group when I was a high school pastor. They were in with me. Mm-hmm. Now they were like 10 and 12, my boys, my girls were like three and four, but they sat in with the high schoolers and they got a bunch of stuff out of that mm-hmm. because you know they were there and saturated constantly with that topic. Yeah. I think we can actually raise the bar for young people, but we have as parents to, to make a decision as Christians in the church. Cause you might think well, like my, my kids are already out, already out of my house. I'm still raising kids. Even though in my church, I'm still raising kids. I'm part of the church, mm-hmm. and we have kids. So you're the extended family. And so I'm really, uh, at this point, more committed to our, it does the church on a regular basis target its proclamation of theology and apologetics and behavior at a level that high schoolers can grab. Mm-hmm. And are there parents or, or older people in that church that understand the importance of that and are okay with it? Yeah. And, and they're patient with that. Yeah. And you know how many people I know who choose their church in Southern California based on its youth ministry? So in other words, if you found a church in your neighborhood, but the youth ministry was something your kids did not want to go to, you would probably change churches. Uh, 
because you you would say, well, you know, but but we're just trying to find a church that has a, a part has a room over the side there where we can stick our kids in that they're okay with. But it turns out we might be able to find a church in which we could all be together, and the church is on mission for young people. Mm. Now that's that's a that's something we got to think about as think going forward. I, don't, I mean, I, I get it that that might be just too radical for us to to even take a step in that direction. But in the end, you do that as a parent, you do that as a married couple. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, we're going to make some sacrifices for a few years because we got to raise our kids. Mm-hmm. And and you think, well, once they go, then we can go on those extra- extravagant vacations. Well, that's true. <laughs> but in that season, you are willing to delay your own personal gratification for your kids. And that's what I think we have to do as a church. Yeah, that's so good. I'm curious too, What? how do you respond to a parent that maybe they're remorseful and they're saying, wow, my son and daughter, it's too late. My son and daughter, they've walked away from the faith or even adults who think back and are like, yeah, my trajectory decisions earlier in life were not good and I need to catch up here. Um, you know, how do you, how do you respond to them and how do you respond to the, the parents on, you know, what are they, what, what are some next steps for them if they have a child that's walked away from the faith? Well, I, I can tell you that all of us have some form of of some way we feel that way in some for some reason. Uh, everyone can find something that they can feel bad about. That's one of the reasons why I, this is more of a cautionary tale. And who tells you cautionary tales except for older people who have made these mistakes? That <laughs> we're in a position where we could actually tell you about the cautionary tale because we've been there and messed it up. Yeah. A lot of what we talk about in our book is not to make parents feel bad because I don't I don't need another book where uh, the parent the book makes me feel guilty for something I didn't do or right. gives me a list of to dos that so long. I'm going to be overwhelmed. So we don't do that in that book. What we talk about is the ways that we have failed. And by the way, my parents failed so miserably in the spiritual upbringing of their kid that he was a very comfortable, confident, cocky atheist until the age of 34. And that was because of the way I was raised. Mm. So it turns out that God will do what God will do, even when you have maybe derailed it. God will get it back on our rails. Yeah. So I have no, I don't get upset or uh, like like weirded out if my kids aren't, you know, where I th- wish they were right now spiritually, mm. right? Like I don't do that because I was. If you knew me at thirty four, you would say that guy, that guy is never going to be a Christian. <laughs> but here I am. So God has got more power than my mistake. Yeah. Um, and so I would say, number one, yeah, you made some mistakes. Okay, get over it. I mean, <laughs> you you could make it worse by by swallowing in pity. You know, just wallowing in pity, rather, than, and then, then you can by just saying, okay, what do I do now? So it turns out that a lot of what we do is about kind of replacing our passions where they ought to be, right? I mean, even as a non-Christian, I knew that my dad was excited about certain things and that if I wanted to be close to my dad, I'm going to need to learn how to, you know, and I, I'm a huge sports fan probably because of my dad. It was It's the way that even today we are most bonded. Mm. You know, we, we, we follow the same teams. We root for the same players. I can get on the phone and have a two-hour conversation about the starting defensive lineup for some of these teams, <laughs> you know, and he's been watching. He'll sit and just watch games and watch linebacker play, you know, so I, I, I know if I if I'm the same way, we can have stuff to talk about. Well, there's stuff that my kids know that I'm passionate about too. And I, I tried to, sh- once I became a Christian, that stuff all shifted toward the gospel. Mm. Um, you know, so my son will tell you that he remembers growing up, he was the oldest. He remembers how what a home improvement nut I was. <laughs> and, um, you know, he also saw me abandon all that once I got saved. Huh. Um, you know, I became singularly focused. Yeah. 
Um, so it's not too late for you to become singularly focused and have your kids. And I wasn't, I wasn't preachy. I wasn't, de- I, I'm not demanding of my kids. I know that I cannot demand my kids into a position. I have to woo them. You can't you know, beat them with a stick. You have to woo them with a carrot. In other words, there has to be something that's appealing. The gospel is offensive enough. So I have to, you know, I have to take an approach that is, is, you know, they have to see life and joy in me. Uh-huh. Uh, before they will be interested in what I have to say about where that comes from. Yeah. Also, you know, the gospel makes me, um, every day, because of my relationship with God, I feel, um, I feel small. I feel like I've just, I've, I feel, I, I, I sense my own sin and my own fallen condition. Mm-hmm. Even though I sense it, I'm still, I think, far too condemning of other people. In other words, I should be the most gracious person on the planet, given how much I know I have to be forgiven for. Yeah. So I have to return to, um, I have to return to that. I have to return to, wow. And I, I try to. I try to return constantly to mm-hmm. the, a certain level of humility that I think will also help me with my kids because it allows me to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. I messed that up. And um, at the same time, I think what's missing, honestly, I, I, I've been thinking this for some time now, is I'm always a, a amazed at how well received any form of masculinity is in the church. In other words, uh, again, this is I didn't I didn't have an experience of, of the church before I became a Christian, um, but I realized that this this there 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 is a seeking for men to be men. Mm in front of their kids mm. and not just to be a slightly different version of mom, <laughs> but to truly be a polar difference between these two. And not that this is better or worse than the other, but that there's a need for both in balance. And I think when I knew that there was a need, uh, that my wife in a marriage, uh, um, relationship would, would, would uh, knock off, would, would help me to be the kind of man I'm supposed to be. Mm. And I knew that, that as a single guy, I, I would not, I'd be a train wreck without my, my wife. I mean, she has, she has, uh, you know, they always say that men protect and women civilize. And that, that relationship is important, right? Amen. And, and, and I think what's missing sometimes, I, I'm amazed that young kids are drawn toward just somebody who's willing to tell them the way it really is and not try to sugarcoat it. And uh, that's been a response that's su- is surprising to me. And I, I wonder for a while, because I, I would get responses that I thought were pretty, I was encouraged by the responses, but I wasn't sure where they were coming from. Like, why? Like, duh, why wouldn't you see it this way? Well, because they were waiting for someone to say it's okay. Uh, you know, you're going to make mistakes and, and you don't have to, to be, to love like Jesus does not mean you're not going to turn over a table once in a while. <laughs> you still are. And, and I think that that's something that is important for our kids to see as dads yeah. for me at least they always knew that i was still i still my dad was a tough guy i mean you, you didn't mess with him and um and he's also a softy okay <laughs> but 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 he never lost that 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 cop in him um and and i think i've always been attracted to that and i think my kids have also been attracted to that uh, that form of masculinity yeah you've mentioned a lot of things we we're actually going to do uh, a giveaway um with in conjunction with this podcast, we've got um, you've mentioned several of the books already, but uh, we've got God's Crime Scene, and and we're also going to give away with that the kids version as well, Forensic Faith, and uh, plus the kids version. 
uh, cold case Christianity plus the kids version. And then also, so the next generation will know, um, you know, give us uh, maybe a quick synopsis of, of those and, um, you know, what, uh, what you recommend, uh, particularly for, you know, what age the kids version, what, what ages do you like right. that for? And, um, you know, how some of those might be targeted if our listeners are interested in picking something up as well. So I wrote all my books with my boys in mind when they were like high schoolers. Now, it doesn't mean that every high schooler is going to be interested enough to plow through some difficult material. But I think the first book was Cold Case Christianity. And that book just makes a case for the Christian worldview. It's very accessible. It's the material I was teaching in my youth group just turned into book form. So I was teaching, I was teaching and preparing our kids to go to the Berkeley trip. And that Berkeley trip, they needed to be prepared to respond to skeptics. I was with Sean, Sean McDowell, uh-huh. who was Josh McDowell's son. And so we were on that trip, and I was training the students on that trip when uh, he said to me, hey, you should write a book about this. So cold case Christianity is really the stuff I've been training our, my students in related to Christianity. Awesome. God's Crime Scene, I think, is a much harder book. But it's, I think, well worth it because 95% of all objections you're going to encounter are probably not going to be around the person of Jesus. They're going to be around the issue of creation versus evolution, about you know science and philosophy. So we hit that stuff hard in God's crime scene. It's fully illustrated. I think it's very accessible. But the backside of the book has all the higher level stuff that you're going to encounter in college. Okay. So that is called God's crime scene. That's about the evidence for God and his existence from eight pieces of evidence in the universe. And then the third book, because I realized after I was traveling around church to church, and this is the sad truth of it. Most churches are not interested in making a case. They don't even understand why we would want to. They think that faith is really supposed to be blind in some way. It's really this act of faith. It's like an act of exertion, even though there's no reason to believe this, mm. and that you get credited for that act of, of believing something that you really shouldn't believe. That is not a Christian definition of faith. Mm. And I knew as I was traveling that I needed to write a, ca- a book that made the case for making the case. <laughs> And that's what forensic faith is. Okay. It talks about a definition of faith that I think is biblical, and it'll help you to communicate. So it's more like a book on evangelism also. Okay. help you to. So it's a trilogy of books. We also wrote kids' books that are for 8- to 12-year-olds. Okay. And we have an entire academy where we have videos for each chapter in the book and printable handouts. A lot of homeschoolers are using those books with the materials we have online at a website that's called casemakersacademy.com. Okay. Casemakersacademy.com. Dot com. You can get all the stuff for those three books. And then the last book, the most recent book from this year, is a book called So the Next Generation Will Know. And that book really is not a what is true book. That's what the other three are. That tell, they'll tell if you're looking, if you're thinking, how do I teach, what do I teach my kids about creation? What do I teach them about the reliability of the Bible? That's in the other three books. Okay. But if your question is, how do I teach them? Like how, like what is the actual physical process that I'm going to use as a mom or a dad, as a Christian educator, or as a youth pastor? Because we're hitting all three of those groups. Every chapter's got a breakout for each one of those three groups. So the other books are what are books. This book is a how-to book. Cool. And so it's not really for kids. It's for the people who are training up kids in the Christian worldview. I think there's a lot of tips that you can use there. And we talk about our tab trips. We talk about how to do those on a much smaller level, how to even do one-day trips as a parent that will change the kind of conversations you're having with your kids. Okay. So that's what we try to talk about in, um, and so the next generation will know. That's very cool. I, I really appreciate that. That's really helpful. And 
for our listeners, just be on the lookout um, following this podcast for the uh, the giveaway as well. Um, and then also for our listeners, just tell uh, tell us also how uh, they can connect with you on social media, any other particular websites, um, ways they can you know connect with you. Yeah, after the first book, we we started a ministry called Cold Case Christianity, and our website is simply coldcasechristianity.com, so you can reach me there. But uh, people have questions, and they want to be able to ask their questions, and you can get bombarded. So what we did was we we developed a phone app, Uh, so it's free online. It's free in in both Android and the uh, uh, iTunes store. Just just go and, and look for Cold Case Christianity. It's the free app, not the book. It's the free app because what you'll see there is there's a chat room in that app. I answer all the questions that are posted in those categories in the chat room every morning. Okay. But sometimes I get there, and it turns out that there are other like good apologists who are using the app, you know, other good believers who know the answers to these important questions that are using the app. And sometimes I get there, it's already been answered by somebody else. <laughs> and if it has been answered and answered well, I just let that sit. So it's you, you'll get somebody, and you'll be able to dialogue with each other and say, hey, uh, but here's the problem I have with that. And then they'll respond, and you can talk back to that. So that app has become the number one way that people get their questions answered. Okay, very cool. That is great. Um, and really, you know, just I, I like to do this with all our guests before before we uh, sign off. Uh, would you take a minute and just pray for our listeners, for the dads, for the parents out there? Yeah, for sure. Um, Father, uh, th- this is the most important aspect of our lives as as Christians. Once we make that decision to have kids, um, we know we have a, a stewardship responsibility that you've given us. And we just pray for wisdom in that. I pray that you'll help us through all of our mistakes, that you'll redeem every wrong turn and turn it into something beautiful we can look at later on and go, wow, only God could have done that. Mm. Um, and we know that we will make lots of mistakes and that you're not a God who wants to shame us in our mistakes, but you're a God who wants to reveal your power through our mistakes. So if we just offer those um we first of all credit you for all the victories and we offer you all of our failures so that you can uh, use them to your glory, which means that you're going to do something powerful with our failures, and then we're going to look back at it and go, wow. So we're just uh, offering, um, just telling you, we're patiently waiting for those wow moments, and we just ask you to deliver those to us uh, as you see fit. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more content and resources, check out the website at dadinthetrenches.com or on social media at Dad in the Trenches. And be sure and click on subscribe to stay up to date with new podcasts. Walk out the heroic fatherhood you were called to live.